welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Aaron Babcock of Ohio University. Our guest today is Patricia Oman, a professor of English at Hastings College in Hastings, Nebraska. Tricia is also the director of Hastings College Press. Welcome to the show, Tricia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tricia, why don't you tell us uh, where you grew up? I, uh, I'm told you are a Midwesterner. I am indeed. I, uh, I grew up in central Illinois in a town called Decatur. And uh, it really got me interested in the Midwest um, from an early age. Uh, I, you know, I used to love all the classic Hollywood films um, set in the Midwest. You know, many of the musicals, such as, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis and, and um, The Music Man. Um, but that didn't really, that didn't really uh, relate to what I saw around me in the Midwest. So I was interested very early in what exactly is the Midwest. And how do we talk about it? Well, what did you see around you in Decatur? Is is my memory correct that Decatur is the home of Caterpillar uh, tractors or um, Caterpillar yes. Incorporated and that sort of thing? Yes. In fact, there are many um, factories there in uh, Decatur. So it's the home of Caterpillar, um, Firestone, uh, Archer Daniel Midland Company, uh, Staley's. Um, so... Um, it's you know it was a pretty big factory town until um, till the early '90s. Uh, so when I was growing up, you know, most most people in town worked for factories in or the, the larger companies in some way or another. Um, and it was also fairly racially diverse as well. Um, I think sometimes we don't think of the Midwest as diverse, but uh, in the case of Decatur, it certainly was. And um, my experiences uh, in Decatur, um, I don't know, I guess I have sort of a, a love-hate relationship with it. Uh, we, ADM and Staley's processed uh, soybeans, and I don't know if you've ever smelled soybeans cooking, but uh, <laughs> that, that smell, you know, has, uh, I, I remember it uh, even now. I've, I haven't lived in Decatur uh, for a couple decades, but um, it's, it's definitely uh, memorable. You know when you're getting close to Decatur because you can smell it. One of the things that I remember most uh, with reference to ADM or Archer Daniels Midland is the amazing book written by this New York Times reporter about the price-fixing scandals relating to ADM. And in particular, uh, what I remember even more is the movie called The Informant that came out four or five years ago. And... um, I'm trying to remember the name of the star, but he did an excellent Matt job. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Who... Yeah, yeah, lysine fixing, price fixing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's well. You know what's interesting about Decatur? Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, my junior high was just a few blocks from the airport, and there was one day when we were let out. Everyone was let out of class to walk to the airport uh, because Mikhail Gorbachev was visiting. And I think back now, at the time, of course, it was very exciting because uh, we got to get out of class. Um, but I think, wow, how weird! Mikhail Gorbachev came to you know this this fairly small town in uh, in Illinois. Um, but what's interesting is that all these big companies, even though Decatur itself is not uh, a big town, I mean, when I was growing up, it was maybe a hundred thousand. It's uh, reduced to about eighty thousand now. 
but it's at the center of all this sort of global capitalism. Um, and, and that movie, The Informant, um, definitely shows how, you know, even a, a small town place in the Midwest like Decatur um, has an influence on global pricing. Well, I think um, there's a book coming out by a professor at the University of Illinois named Kristen Hoganson, and it's all about the connections of Illinois or the central Midwest to global commodity markets and the role the Midwest plays in these markets and and really why people like Mikhail Gorbachev visit Decatur, Illinois. So keep an eye out for that book in, in coming years. Um, I, well, what I found, well, what I find interesting about that, though, is that, um, you know, you think of the Midwest as, well, I mean, it is a, a large agricultural area. But growing up, the, the produce that we had in the supermarkets wasn't actually from the area. You know, we shipped in sweet corn from Colorado and... Uh, so it's interesting that even though we were, were surrounded by plenty, um, you didn't really see that plenty uh, reaching people in town. <laughs> uh, let me ask you something else about uh, central Illinois. How far were you from Peoria, Illinois? And I ask this because of this famous marketing slogan that is used by advertising firms on Madison Avenue that if you can sell it in Peoria, it'll sell nationwide. Yeah, we were about an hour from Peoria, uh, an hour's drive. So did you get a sense of that um, of that role for the Midwest when you were growing up as this kind of tastemaker for national trends? No, <laughs> I didn't. I thought I, you know, my impression when I was growing up was that uh, Decatur was, the sort of the opposite of that, that it was outside of, outside of um, uh, any sort of general taste. Right. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, <laughs> although I suppose if you, if you are embedded in what's considered sort of the norm, um, I guess it, it can be kind of invisible to you as such. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's their secret on Madison Avenue. Um, let's talk about, uh, you went off to college from Decatur to University of Illinois. What did you study there? Um, I studied classics and comparative lit. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to study, but I knew I wanted to study literature. Um, and I had studied Latin for many years, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll just start there. That seems to be kind of the beginning. Um, and of course, in college, I realized that's not the beginning, (laughs) but, um, yeah, and I just sort of, uh, I started uh, reading, you know, many texts in Latin and Greek, and uh, from there worked my way to modernist authors. But it wasn't really until I left the Midwest that I became interested in the Midwest as a subject for academic study. Um, I, you know, Decatur is, is uh, about a two-hour drive from Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain lived as a child, and... Um, I didn't even know that until I was an adult. There was just there was no sense uh, when I was growing up that there's any um, that there's li- any literary presence in the Midwest at all. Um, and it was only when I left that I started discovering um, writers who were who were from that area. Of course, I knew about Mark Twain and we read uh, Huck Finn in, in junior high, but it never really clicked with me for some reason that it's set just you know not too far from where I grew up. Um, and I later discovered that there are even writers from uh, the Decatur area. Um, so 
one uh, writer, Madeline Babcock-Smith, um, her novel, The Lemon Jelly Cake, uh, which is set in sort of a fictional representation of Springfield, is, has become one of my favorite novels. Hmm. I'm not entirely sure why um, that wasn't emphasized in school, or, you know, local literature. I don't know why it wasn't emphasized in school, but uh, it really wasn't. So it was really when I um, went to the UK to do my master's that I, uh, I guess I had enough distance to be able to recognize that um, there was quite a, 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 there was a, a pretty big literary presence in Illinois. So you ended up in a PhD program at the University of Oregon where you wrote your dissertation about the Midwest. Can you tell us what you focused on? Yeah, I focused on um, this question of how, how exactly did the Midwest become flyover country? Like, how does it become sort of culturally invisible towards the later 20th century? And so my dissertation traced, traced that narrative through literature and film from the beginning of the 20th century um, to the end of the 20th century. And so I looked at, um, you know, texts of the early 20th century when the Midwest was in vogue. <laughs> That's what you have, you know, the very the big authors such as uh, Sherwood Anderson and um, Sinclair Lewis, uh, who were really, really popular writing about the Midwest. But that is sort of a, a, a glorious, shining moment of the early 20th century that I, that I don't think really has been repeated. There are many writers from the Midwest who have since gained national fame, but we don't really often talk about them as Midwestern writers anymore. Um, and so the dissertation is sort of tracing that narrative in um, literature and popular texts. And part of the argument um, was that we shouldn't look just at literature, but also at popular texts such as musicals, horror films. Um, and when you do that, you start to see that um, that region doesn't really belong to the people who live in it, uh, or at least representations of the region. Um, I think many of our ideas of what the Midwest is comes from, you know, popular film, comes from genre film, comes from musicals like, like Meet Me in St. Louis and uh, The Music Man. It comes from horror films like Children of the Corn. Um, and I think that those have helped to create this, popular notion that the Midwest is flyover country. So can you give us a better sense historically um, in terms of the timing of this, Tricia, when the notion of flyover country developed and when the idea of the Midwest as this prominent pace-setter nation began to decline? What years are we talking about here? This would be the interworld war years. So uh, the Midwest is most popular um, in the first two, three decades of the 20th century, so 1900 to mm, into the 1920s a little bit. Um, but in the 1920s, there's um, an, an interest nationally in uh, region, but in a, in a slightly different way, region as folk. So between World War One and World War Two. Uh, in the 1920s and especially in the 1930s uh, during the Great Depression, um, there's a, a huge flowering of regional interest on a national level. And I think by the time we get to the post-World War II era, that interest in folk has become interest in um, ideas of the nation, 
rather than ideas of the region. And so I think a lot of uh, our many regional images, you know, such as the, the family farm or um, the one image that I'm looking at right now is the pioneer woman. Um, I think those become representative of a sort of nationalist reimagining of American history that deals with the land, but in, in a mythic way rather than in a specific regionalist way. And so I think that the 1950s definitely um, is when there's a sharp decline in interest in regionalism all across the country, not just in the Midwest. But I think it's at that moment, it's at the mid-20th century, that the, the Midwest sort of falls into this um, the stereotype of flyover country. And part of that is due to, um, in popular culture, especially in the 30s and 40s, uh, especially with folk musicals, the Midwest is represented as this very nostalgic, uh, the, the mid nostalgic Midwestern small town becomes fairly representative of the U.S. And our image of that in the, the, the 30s, 40s, and 50s is that that small town existed at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think that um, nostalgic look back to the turn of the 20th century is what really made the, the Midwest invisible for the rest of the 20th century. We are talking today with Tricia Oman, a professor of English at Hastings College in Hastings, Nebraska. Tricia is also the director of Hastings College Press. Tricia, you were just talking about the decline of Midwestern regionalism, and this uh, relates very directly to a new book uh, that we have both been working on for a couple of years um, that, that is being published by Hastings College Press. But before we talk about that book, uh, why don't you tell us about the origins of Hastings College Press and how it, uh, how it was created? Well, it was originally um, a service to students here at Hastings College. Uh, we had many students who were interested in publishing, but being in Hastings, Nebraska, there just aren't many resources around here. Um, since my background is in publishing, um, before I went to grad school, I, I worked in publishing as a production editor. Um, it was fairly easy to, you know, come up with a couple courses, and then from there, um, the press became, sort of grew out of that um, publishing program. And the idea of the, for the press um, comes from my own scholarly interest. Um, we specialize in bringing back forgotten regional texts, and then also in publishing um, collections of critical essays on regional topics. And um, all, all of the books are produced by students in courses and internships. So the press and the publishing program are, are interrelated, so neither one would exist without the other. Um, part of the reason we forgot we uh, focused on forgotten texts, um, that's a scholarly interest of mine, but I also incorporated it into uh, my courses. So I'm interested in not just the, the texts that have become canonical. Um, so when I teach a survey of American Lit, you know, of course I include the canonical text, but I'm also interested in the texts that, for one reason or another, critics or scholars haven't considered to be particularly significant. And what scholars consider to be significant and what people actually read um, are sometimes two very different things. Um, and so this, the press is, is one way to sort of bring back some of those forgotten texts. Can you give us an 
Can you give us an example of one of those texts that you have rediscovered and put back in circulation? Yeah, well, one of them um, is uh, a book by John Harriman called What Happened, which was um, it's set in Michigan. It was originally published in 1926 in Paris. Uh, Harriman couldn't find uh, an American publisher for it. Um, it was... Um, it was very realistic, so it follows um, this this young guy uh, who uh, is basically trying to figure out life, and he's kind of a womanizer, and so it, it's uh, a fairly realistic portrayal of of teenage sex, and um, and so Herman couldn't find uh, a publisher for it, so he published it in in America. So he published it in Paris in 1926, and when it was when copies of it were important to the U.S., it was seized by custom uh, for being obscene. By today's standards, it's it's definitely not obscene. Um, but there was a trial, and Herman lost, and so um, the book was never actually published in the U.S. But uh, Herman was was part of the, the sort of American expat group in Paris, you know, friends with Hemingway and Dos Passos. And so um, this book just never really reached an American audience, even though it's set in, uh, primarily in Michigan. Um, and I think it's a, it's, it's a whole lost chapter of that, that modernist moment. And I think what's especially interesting about it is that it brings together, um, elements of, it brings modernism to the Midwest. And we typically have trouble, uh, or scholars have had trouble reconciling those two things. The Midwest is rural and agrarian and modernism is urban and cosmopolitan. So scholars have for a long time suggested that those are two separate things, but this book that had been forgotten, What Happens, um, shows that, no, those aren't actually two separate things. So we've been very excited about that particular book. Um, so I, I'm constantly looking for um, texts like that that rewrite our understanding of what American literature is. And uh, we've been publishing since, let's see, for about two years now, and uh, by the time we get the rest of our 2017 books out, we will have published over 20 uh, forgotten texts. That's, uh, that's a very large number in, uh, in two years. Congratulations. I'm sure that's well, a large number of work, a large amount of work. It, it is, but um, our business model helps us with that because it's students producing the books in courses and internships. So most of our production work is done um, in our, we have a three-week January term, and uh, most of our production for the year is done during that intensive three-week period. Um, and students take it as a class, so they're getting, they're learning how not just to typeset and lay out books and do professional proofreading, um, but they're getting academic credit for that. Sort of a win-win. <laughs> Tell us, Tricia, about the Rediscovering the American Midwest series. Um, that that you've launched at the press? Well, um, so this series uh, came out of uh, main discussions that I've had with several Midwestern scholars, including you. Um, and uh, it became really clear that there are many scholars who are interested in Midwest studies, but there aren't necessarily venues for publishing that. Um, and that's affected by a number of ways. Um, you know, it's Publishers not necessarily the interest, not necessarily interested in publishing stuff on the Midwest, but it's also scholars um, who, you know, don't get a whole lot of credit for publishing on regional topics. Um, regionalism is not considered to be 
perhaps the most valuable topic for scholars working in history and um, literature. And so um, I thought, well, you know what, we can provide a venue for that. So we started the series, uh, Rediscovering the American Midwest. And in some ways, it was somewhat accidental that it turned out to be a series, as you know, because uh, we originally just planned on the one volume. Um, but we got so many proposals that from that initial batch of proposals, we were able to put together three different volumes um, in this series. Um, and I think the number of proposals we received uh, really speaks to the, the number of scholars who are interested in Midwest studies but don't necessarily have that venue for it. Can you give our listeners a teaser about some of those volumes that will be forthcoming? Yes, so uh, Volume 1, uh, The Midwestern Moment, which is edited by uh, you, John Lauk, um, is called The Midwestern Moment, and it's subtitled The Forgotten World, Early 20th Century Midwest Regionalism, 1880-1940. And um, this volume looks at a number of forgotten writers, artists, thinkers, um, many people who perhaps were popular in their own time, but for whatever reason um, have just fallen into obscurity. So, for instance, um, there's uh, an article about um, Booth Tarkington's Defense of the Midwest. There's an article about Best Streeter Aldrich, um, Ruth Suckow, uh, the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra, uh, Walt Mason, who was a, um, a Kansas poet who was syndicated in newspapers across the country. Uh, these are all people who helped to define the Midwest in its most popular moment uh, in the early 20th century and who have since been forgotten. Uh, volume 2, and that comes out um, August 1st, is the official publication date for that one. Volume 2 will come out this fall, and that one is about the relationship between modernism and the Midwest. So that volume includes essays on art, literature, um, and is trying to bridge that gap between scholarly conceptions of what modernism is and what the Midwest is. And so um, that volume looks at um, not just the, the artists you would expect, um, such as uh, Grant Wood, but also looking at, you know, what about um, Iowa as, or Davenport as a, as one of those cities that becomes the sort of center of modernism. Um, the third volume uh, is uh, about representations of early 20th century Midwestern places. So this one um, looks at, you know, how, how do we represent the Midwest? So uh, tourism, um, representations in popular culture. Um, so this one brings together popular culture, literature, um, to think about, okay, well, how is it that we define the Midwest? And what I, what I find particularly interesting about um, that volume is that it's looking at not just the way that Midwesterners define themselves, but the way that non-Midwesterners define the Midwest. And I think we have to, when we think about region, we have to think about both of those things. Um, especially when we think about tourism, for, in, for instance. Um, you know, tourists, or, or you know, many local um, tourist boards, are um, interested in you know, figuring out how can we bring people in, what are they going to be interested in. Um, Main Street is a major concept that many small-town tourism boards have adopted, uh, the idea that there's this, um, this quaint uh, throwback to the early 20th century where you've got local shops, and this is a, a place uh, for uh, where families can go and um, 
but that idea really comes from outside the Midwest. I mean, so many of these many of these um, small towns that are reimagining themselves um, are patterning themselves, you know, after Disneyland <laughs> rather than perhaps historical reality. So uh, one of the things I really like about Volume Three is it's, it's considering that that um, relationship between um, people who live in a region and how they represent it, and then how that region is represented by outsiders as well. So I think this is a really, really exciting collection. Um, some of these essays are just really outstanding. In some, in some sort of meta moment here, I'm thinking of how Disneyland was, uh, the construction of it, the design of it was inspired by Walt Disney's youth in Marceline, Missouri. And yeah. as that became popularized... I guess that bounced back to some tourism boards. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. In the, in fact, there was a um, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was actually um, a, a, a national push, um, the National Historic Register, uh, encouraging sort of um, saving or revitalizing downtown areas, and it was called the sort of Main Street uh, Agenda. <laughs> You mentioned uh, our volume entitled The Midwestern Moment, uh, which does include this chapter on Booth Tarkington of Indiana. Uh, I just noticed, speaking of Indiana, I just noticed on Twitter that this is the anniversary of the death of James Whitcomb Riley, also of Indiana, and there were some pictures on on the Internet today related to this anniversary of how James Whitcomb Riley was so famous and so well-known that his body laid in state at uh, the Indiana Capitol uh, when he passed away and that uh, 40,000 people came in uh, to pay their respects and how they had this big state funeral with lots of prominent speakers coming in. So that really speaks to the power of regionalism and regionalist voices of the era. Yeah, I think so. And um, for whatever reason, um, you know, Riley was a very um, popular poet, but maybe also a populist poet. Um, And uh, for whatever reason, literary scholars have just sort of moved away from that. Um, Anything that sort of smacks of 19th century sentimentalism um, has just sort of fallen to the wayside uh, in terms of what scholars think of as significant contributions. Uh, if we think about the, the authors from the early 20th century that that most scholars agree are canonical, those would be the modernist writers. So Eliot, Pound, um, the writers who are publishing in um, the Chicago magazine Poetry. Well, that's a even though that's a Chicago publication, um, we don't tend to think of it as a regional publication. Uh, but it's the the modernists who have sort of captured um, scholarly attention. There are, I, I, I would say, hundreds of popular writers from the Midwest from the first half of the 20th century that have just since been sort of glossed over. I think it is a very impressive mission that you have taken on to rediscover those voices, those non-modernist, regionalist voices of the Midwest that, as you say, were once very popular and uh, and now are largely forgotten. And that's, that's one part of the mission, is finding those writers who fell out of favor because they, you know, because they weren't so-called modernists. 
the other half of that is is breaking down that distinction between the Midwest and modernism and looking at many writers who um, were both regional and modernist. So completely um, debunking the idea that modernism and the Midwest are, are different things. We have been talking today with Tricia Oman, a professor of English at Hastings College in Hastings, Nebraska. Tricia is also the director of Hastings College Press, which is actively seeking manuscripts related to the old Midwest, the old Midwestern literary traditions, and the forgotten writers of the Midwest. And in future months, Hastings College Press will be releasing multiple volumes of essays about uh, many topics uh, related to the Midwest. Tricia, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.